Thank you, guys. I just got a fever for more trash can. <laughs> more trash can. <laughs> this weekend, we start a new sermon series called Essentials of what followers of Jesus Christ should understand and believe. Uh, we didn't just pick this title out of a hat. We, what you call something matters. And we actually had about 25 different options for this series before we settled on, on essentials. The, the word essential means absolutely necessary, indispensable. And every area of life uh, has their essentials. A cook has their essential items that they can't cook without. A carpenter has essential tools that they put in their tool belt and actually wear on their person. Uh, we have essential smartphone apps. Teachers put out a list of essential school supplies that the student needs to bring to the classroom. Uh, musicians have essential gear for their instrument. A, a seamstress has her essential tools. I remember when I was a kid, one time I took the, uh, I had a school project, I took the scissors out of my mom's sewing box and used them for my school project. And I was informed that those scissors are essential to the sewing box, and I should never, ever, never do that again. And I didn't. Uh, if you've ever gone backpacking or hiking, you know that there are essentials that you need to survive in the wilderness. And that's, that's kind of the theme we've gone with with the graphics here. We created a cool-looking graphic to remind you of this. But if You've been following Jesus Christ for decades. This series is for you. I've been a believer for over 40 years. I'm really enjoying this series, preparing for it. Maybe you're one of the dozens of people who've just started following Jesus Christ this year here at Rockbrook. Well, this series is, it will be great for you. Or maybe you're just investigating Christianity in the church. This series will be really good for you. Uh, there are things, these are the things that the Bible is explicitly clear on. Uh, these are the things that unify uh, our faith. These are the essential beliefs of the Christian faith. And we have, a, a, in our growth track, we have a class called 201 Essentials. And that class is different than this sermon series. I don't want to confuse you with this. That's one of the, the questions we had about using the essential title. Because 201 Essentials in growth track gives you the essential habits of the Christian life. What do you do in your life to live out your faith? The series is about essential beliefs. What are the ideas upon which you, you base your faith? And so the first time in 19 years, Rockbrook will be 19 years old next year, the first time we've ever preached through our doctrinal statement. So I just want to read through the doctrinal statement and let you know where we're going. So number one is the Bible. We believe that the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, is the inspired Word of God and is the only basis and the final authority for our faith and practice. Of the Godhead, we believe in the one true living God who is perfect, infinite, eternal, coexisting in three persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, we believe in the deity, virgin birth, sacrificial death, bodily resurrection, and the present high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. We believe in the personal and eminent return of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Holy Spirit, we believe in the personality of the Holy Spirit and his ministry of conviction, regeneration, empowerment, and indwelling. 
Number five, humankind. We believe that humans in their natural state are totally depraved and in need of a divine redeemer. Uh, Salvation. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ and his shed blood on our behalf. Sanctification is through the work and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The church, we believe the church is the company of believers united by the Holy Spirit into one body, the body of Christ. Each member of the church has been called by God to minister to others within the body and to manifest Jesus Christ to those who are without. Ordinances. We believe that the Lord Jesus gave two ordinances to the church, water baptism and the Lord's Supper. In water baptism, following faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the convert is commanded by the Word of God to be baptized by immersion underwater in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Lord's Supper, a time of communion in the presence of God and in fellowship with other believers when the elements of bread and juice representing the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ are taken in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. These are big issues. These things are deep. These are bigger and deeper than what kind of church building are you going to use. These things are deeper than do you do traditional music or contemporary music. They're bigger than whether you have Sunday school or small groups or not. They're bigger than a strategy, deeper than a preference, stronger than an opinion. These things are timeless. They are essential. Those are the essentials we're going to look at in this sermon series. I'm going to address some of them. Ryland is going to address some of them. We're having a great time working through this uh, together. But today, in, in preparation for launching the Essential Series, I want us to look at one of the most essential questions of the Christian faith. And that's the question, who determines right and wrong? And the question has probably never been more important in our culture than it is right now. And you may not hear it asked in those specific uh, terms just that way. The question gets asked all the time. Who determines right and wrong? And why does this question matter? Well, it matters because it shapes how we live. Ideas have consequences. And the bigger the ideas, the bigger the consequences. Our beliefs have consequences on two levels. First, what we believe impacts how we live as individuals. Ideas have feet. They walk out of our brains and into our lives. Beliefs determine uh, how we live, how we make decisions, how we relate to other people. Our beliefs impact every area of our individual life. And not only do they impact us as individuals, but our beliefs impact how we live as a culture. Culture is the working out of our deepest beliefs together. As you work out your beliefs and and someone else works out their beliefs, we we come together and we produce a culture. We produce a world in which we live, a worldview to live by. And we live in a culture right now that is facing a lot of big moral questions, even dilemmas. Questions of abortion go go deep into the question of identity. Are, Are the unborn part of the human family or just disposable tissue? Do the unborn have value and rights even before they're born? Questions about marriage go to the fundamental question of what's right, what's wrong, and who gets to say? Questions about international affairs. We we talk about people on the other side of the planet who have different beliefs than we do, sometimes to the point that they want to harm us. All these issues come back 
to the ultimate question, who determines right and wrong? Who determines what the essentials are? Now, there are a couple of ways we could approach this today. One is is we could just stack up all the Bible verses in which God delineates his moral requirements to us. And trust me, there are lots and lots of those verses. I want to just give you one example here, uh, Micah 6.8. It says, he has told you, O man, and I picked this one because this one shows you the flow. Notice it says, he has told you, Oh man, not we have told him. The flow of moral authority in the biblical perspective is God has told us what he requires of us. It's not the other way around. And what is required of us? Well, in this verse, it's to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And so there, God lays out for us three of his moral expectations for us. Three examples of God's claim on our moral life. But I don't want to just go through the Bible and and trot out just verse after verse after verse. Instead, today, I want us to look at the big picture of the Bible story and and, and see what the Bible says about God's moral authority. You you can sum up the story of the Bible. Today, we're going to sum it up in four uh, phrases, four scenes. Scene one is creation, scene two is the fall, scene three is redemption, and scene four is restoration. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Scene one, creation. The punchline of creation is this world belongs to God. The creation story of the Bible assumes that the world belongs to God. God does not come and visit your world. You live in God's world. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created. God created. The theological concept of the entire Bible is that God is in charge. And you remember how the phrase goes in Genesis. You know, God said, let there be, and there was. Let there be light, let there be land, let there be sea, let there be fish, let there be birds, let there be plants, let there be, uh, be people. God is in charge. In fact, God is so in charge that nothing exists unless he wants it to exist. John 1 talks about Jesus' role in this. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in creation. It says, through him, through Christ, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And God is so in charge that even nothing obeys him. God says to nothing to become something And nothing says, okay. And it happens. The world, the universe is under God's authority. And that includes the moral authority over the creation and everything in it, you and me. Now what if we say there's no God out there? Then the only place left to look for moral authority is not out there, it's just in here. I have to look inside myself. In fact, that's the position of the humanist, the the humanist manifesto. It's a document written by a group of secular humanists, atheists, Darwinian evolutionists. Paul Kurtz is the editor, and he said this. He said, humans should not look beyond themselves for salvation. What humanism teaches is that we must muster our own courage and compassion to realize our highest aspirations. In other words, I don't look to God, I just look inside myself. If it's to be, 
It's up to me. Now, what's the problem with looking inside yourself? Well, what if you're not up to the task? I mean, if I'm supposed to save myself, what if I'm not up to it? What if I look inside myself and all, the only thing I see is actually violent? What if I, I look inward and discover that's what's true and right for me is to torture little babies for fun? I mean, I read the news. You read the news too. I mean, all the time there are stories of people who think their own pleasure is the highest good. They live for their highest pleasure even if it abuses or hurts other people. So telling people to look inside for moral truth is like sending people out into the wilderness with a compass that always points to them. You know, a compass that always points at you means you're always lost. You ever been lost? I mean seriously, dangerously, horrifyingly lost? Imagine being dangerously, horrifyingly lost, and all you've got is a compass that points at you. That's the condition we're living in. A a compass works because it points to something outside of yourself. It points to something fixed, something unchanging, something true. And the moral relativism of our day provides nothing by which we can orient ourselves. That's why our culture is adrift. Does it seem to you that we're seeking answers to ever more and more extreme questions? Questions like, which bathroom people should use? And one I read this past week, should you marry your mother? And you laugh because it's ridiculous. But it's a real situation that's in the news, and our culture says, if you want to... The problem is, you look inside yourself to determine right and wrong, sometimes what's inside of me and what's inside of you clash. Well, when what's inside of me and what's inside of you clash, who determines what's right and what's wrong? Frederick Nietzsche, the the great atheist, said, without God, there is no right and wrong, only power. Who determines what's right and wrong? The strongest the biggest bully. Might makes right. Now, there are lots of atheists who are moral and kind people. There are lots of atheists who are more moral even than some who claim to be Christians. But the issue is not, can you be an atheist and be moral? The question is, can you explain morality as an atheist? Do you have a reason for morality as an atheist? You know, we all admit there's right and wrong, even atheists. But the question is, who determines right and wrong? And the creation scene says, God determines right and wrong. I don't get to determine right and wrong. I get to discover right and wrong, and then I'm supposed to do what's right. And that leads us to scene three, which is the fall. The fall says that not only does God determine right and wrong, we have failed to do what's right. Bible is not up in the air about the human condition. Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. The Bible's not ambiguous about our problem. It says the wages of these sins is death. 
our violation of right and wrong has earned us the death sentence. God's condemnation of us because of our sin is fully justified. Now, our culture doesn't like this concept. Our culture doesn't even like the word sin. But sin is a necessary part of our belief system. If we're going to be able to operate in in a moral world, we've got to understand that there is sin. And no matter how hard we try to reduce, reduce everything down to brain chemistry or animal instinct, or we try to replace sin with softer words like error or mistake or weakness... The most essential parts of life are matters of individual moral choice. Decisions that I must make, whether I'm going to be brave or cowardly, honest or deceitful, compassionate or callous, faithful or disloyal, selfish or selfless. When modern culture tries to replace sin with ideas like, oh, error or weakness, you know, they try to remove words like evil, That doesn't make life any less moral. It just obscures the consequences of our moral choices. We've got to call sin, sin. Because if we don't call it for what it is, then we give up on God's moral authority. And if God isn't our moral authority, then what we embrace is called moral evolution. And moral evolution is exactly what it implies. It's the idea that we are getting better and better morally. We're becoming more just, more virtuous, more caring. We're naturally better than our ancestors. Is that true? Are we morally better? And this isn't just theory. This is a real phenomenon. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, in his decision on same-sex marriage, didn't argue for same-sex marriage on the basis of the Constitution. He argued for it on the basis of moral evolution. That we, it's okay to do this because we're becoming morally better and better. That's what he argues for. And then a couple of weeks after the decision, the videos of Planned Parenthood harvesting live baby parts for sale comes out. Are we really becoming more virtuous? Are we really becoming more moral? When you deny the existence of a God who has moral authority, when you deny the fact that human beings are fallen, ideas have consequences and ideas have victims. Our beliefs don't stay in our lives. They walk out and they create victims. That's why the next scene is so important. Scene three is redemption. That's where Jesus Christ meets God's moral obligation on your behalf. That's what we've been talking about the last seven weeks as we looked at what Christ did on the cross. That was redemption. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, for our sake, He, God, made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. That in Him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the process of Christ redeeming a fallen world on the cross. When you're unrighteous, Christ is righteous. When you're disobedient, Christ is obedient. And Christ offers to exchange His righteousness, His obedience for your rebellion, for your sin and disobedience. 
We failed to meet God's moral requirements, but Jesus Christ has met those requirements in his life and in his death, and he offers to exchange his righteousness for our sin. But if we don't make that change, if if we deny that God has the moral authority, if we deny that we've done anything wrong, if we deny that we need redemption, Romans 1 says that we have exchanged the truth for a lie. And this pops up on our culture because we've exchanged truth for tolerance. It's not about truth anymore, it's about tolerance. And tolerance is a beautiful world that's been badly redefined. Beautiful word. Tolerance at its best means you're made in the image and likeness of God, I'm made in the image and likeness of God. I honor your inherent dignity and worth as a person. You honor my inherent dignity and worth as a person, even if we disagree. Even if we're different ages, genders, races, beliefs, cultures, you're valuable, I'm valuable as individuals. That's, that's tolerance. But because our culture thinks there are no moral absolutes, our culture thinks tolerance means that every idea is equally valid. What culture says to be tolerant of a person means that you've got to be tolerant of any idea they believe or embrace. But all ideas are equally, uh, equally true. And, and, and some ideas aren't better, some ideas aren't truer than others. But some ideas are truer than others. Some cultures are better than others. For instance, Nazi culture was bad. Whether I was a Jew or a Nazi, it was still a bad culture. It wasn't just bad if I was on the wrong side of the gas chamber. Nazi culture was wrong. It was wrong. It was bad for everybody. Ravi Zacharias said it this way. He said, cultures that love their neighbors are better than cultures that eat their neighbors. Not all cultures, not all ideas are equally valid. And so we've replaced truth with tolerance. And we're believing lies. Another thing we've replaced, and and this one's more insidious, we've replaced freedom with autonomy. We've replaced freedom with self-rule, self-determination, self-decision. Oz Guinness says the greatest enemy of freedom is freedom. Why? Because when we live with freedom apart from virtue, when we live, pursue freedom apart from the moral authority of God, freedom turns into license and license enslaves us. Studies have shown that Americans have higher addiction levels than any other culture. We're addicted to sex and drugs and porn and alcohol and food and shopping and Facebook and cell phones and coffee and caffeine and chocolate. I mean, what does it mean to be an addict? You know, people think, well, you know, addicts are free to make the choices that they make. Are they? No, addicts are slaves. Isn't it ironic that our pursuit of freedom turns us into slaves? Because when there's no moral authority, no designer, no God, when, when you say that you're free to do whatever you want to do, you actually put yourself on the path to enslavement. 
You are, you're not most free when you get to do whatever you want to do. You are most free when you do what you were made to do by your Creator. That real freedom comes in relationship with our Creator. And that leads to scene four, which is restoration. Restoration is the correction for the mess that we're in. So creation says there's a moral authority, God. The fall means that we've fallen short of his moral requirements. Redemption says that Christ meets those moral requirements for us and offers us salvation and righteousness. And restoration is what's hap- what happens as a result. Christ's obedience means he's been given moral authority over the universe. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. He's been given the authority. And in the new heaven and the new earth that Christ is preparing for us, all the brokenness, all the relational carnage that we have created because of our sin, everything that's broken is going to be restored. Every lie is going to be exposed to the truth. Every wrong is going to be made right. Jesus will fulfill his prayer that he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Things will be restored, not to the way they were, but to the way God made them to be. In the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, we live in the season between redemption and restoration. Christ has accomplished redemption on the cross. And now, as it says in our doctrinal statement, we're waiting for him to return to restore everything. So what does it mean to live between redemption and restoration? Notice notice that redemption and restoration are re-words. They start with R-E. Bible has lots of re-words in the Bible. And words like renew, restore, regenerate, repent, resurrect. I mean, sometimes you've got to push it a little. Okay? Reconcile. I mean, what do these re-words imply? Well, re-words imply, again, they imply it's going to be fixed. It's going to be put back together. One of the most damaging consequences of our failure to meet God's moral requirements is our relationships are broken. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with our spouse, with our parents, with our kids, with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, with, with creation, with nature, with the world. The relationship is broken. There's a reword for that in 2 Corinthians 5.18. Says now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. 
When you make that exchange of redemption, God reconciles you to himself and he turns you into a reconciler. You've been given the ministry, the word of reconciliation. And so the way we live in this season between redemption and restoration is we go out into a world full of broken people and broken cultures and we reconcile them to God. We take the message of reconciliation to a broken world. And there are Christians all over the world, there are Christians right here at Rockbrook who are doing amazing reconciling work through the power of the gospel. We live between redemption and restoration by being reconcilers. Now, it's one thing to know that God is in charge. It's another thing to live like it. So how do I live like God's in charge? I'm going to give you three tools to put in your toolkit. First is we have God's gift of repentance. Repent. You may have never thought of repentance as a gift. Usually we think of repentance as like a punishment. We, we think that, that we need to repent because God is mad at us. But no, we repent because God is kind to us. Repentance is a gift. Repentance is God giving you the opportunity to turn your life around. Repentance is is God's reword for another, another chance. Acts 3 says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. We've got to repent. We've got to turn to God, let our sins be forgiven, and let Him refresh us. Second thing that that we need to do is you need to guard your heart. Guard your loves. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We live in a culture that goes after the heart. Culture goes after the things that we love. Most people don't become skeptics or relativists or atheists because they've wrestled their way intellectually uh, out of believing in God. Romans 1 says is, is very clear. That's not how it happens. We, we don't reject God and then start to sin. We start to sin and then we reject God in order to justify ourselves. You know, we, we start to love ourselves or love our sin more than we love God. That's why we got to guard our hearts. And the third tool is you just got to be immersed in the Scriptures. I mean, thank God that we have the Scriptures. Thank God that we have a compass that points us to something outside of ourselves and shows us the way out of this morass. Thank God that we have some place we can go to find the help and the healing and the hope that we need. And we find it, not in the culture, not in ourselves. We find it in God's Word. I've asked Ryland next week to bring a message on the Bible that just reignites our passion for God's Word. Repent, guard your heart, and immerse yourself in the Scripture. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you loved us first and and that you you take this frail, fallen, uh, finite bag of sin and you redeem it through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. 
And God, I would pray that you'd help each one of us to turn to you, to look to you as that essential that we need in our lives to guide us, direct us, to reconcile us to one another, to reconcile us to you, to the world around us. God, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.